since the mission of Jesus in the world was to save the world rather than to judge it, this side of the matter is less dwelt upon. In all other Reformed creeds in which the doctrine of reprobation is dealt with at all, it is treated as an essential part of the doctrine of predestination. The Westminster Confession, after stating the doctrine of election, adds, The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the inscrutable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Those who hold the doctrine of election but deny that of reprobation can lay but little claim to consistency. To affirm the former while denying the latter makes the decree of predestination an illogical and lopsided decree. The creed which states the former but denies the latter will resemble a wounded eagle attempting to fly with but one wing. In the interest of a mild Calvinism, some have been inclined to give up the doctrine of reprobation, and this term, in itself a very innocent term, has been the entering wedge for harmful attacks upon Calvinism, pure and simple. Mild Calvinism is synonymous with sickly Calvinism, and sickness is not cured is the beginning of the end. Comments by Calvin, Luther, and Warfield Calvin did not hesitate to base the reprobation of the lost as well as the election of the saved on the eternal purpose of God. We have already quoted him to the effect that not all men are created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestinated either to life or to death. And again he says, there can be no election without its opposite reprobation. That the latter raises problems which are not easy to solve, he readily admits, but advocates it is the only intelligent and scriptural explanation of the facts. Luther also, as certainly as Calvin, attributes the eternal perdition of the wicked as well as the eternal salvation of the righteous to the plan of God. This mightily offends our rational nature, he says, that God should of his own mere unbiased will leave some men to themselves, harden them and condemn them. But he gives abundant demonstration and does continually that this is really the case, namely that the sole cause why some are saved and others perish proceeds from his willing the salvation of the former and the perdition of the latter, according to that of St. Paul, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. And again, it may seem absurd to human wisdom that God should harden, blind, and deliver up some men to a reprobate sense, that he should first deliver them over to evil and condemn them for that evil. But the believing spiritual man sees no absurdity at all in this, knowing that God would be never a whit less good even though he should destroy all men. He then goes on to say that this must not be understood to mean that God finds men good, wise, obedient, and makes them evil, foolish, and obdurate, but that they are already depraved and fallen, 
in that those who are not regenerated, instead of becoming better under the divine commands and influences, only react to become worse. In reference to Romans 9, 10, and 11, Luther says that all things whatsoever arise from and depend upon the divine appointment whereby it was preordained who should receive the word of life and who should disbelieve it, who should be delivered from their sins and who should be hardened in them, who should be justified and who condemned. The biblical writers, says Dr. Warfield, are as far as possible from obscuring the doctrine of election because of any seemingly unpleasant corollaries that flow from it. On the contrary, they expressly draw the corollaries which have often been so designated and make them a part of their explicit teaching. Their doctrine of election, they are free to tell us, for example, does certainly involve a corresponding doctrine of preterition. The very term adopted in the New Testament to express it, ex legomai, which, as Mayer justly says, Ephesians 1.4, always has and must of logical necessity have a reference to others to whom the chosen would, without the ekloga, still belong, embodies a declaration of the fact that in their election others are passed by and left without the gift of salvation. The whole presentation of the doctrine is such as either to imply or openly assert on its very emergence the removal of the elect by the pure grace of God, not merely from a state of condemnation, but out of the company of the condemned. A company on whom the grace of God has no saving effect, and who are therefore left without hope in their sins, and the positive just reprobation of the impenitent for their sins is readily explicitly taught in sharp contrast with the gratuitous salvation of the elect despite their sins. And again he says the difficulty which is felt by some in following the apostles' argument here, Romans 11 and following, we may suspect has its roots in part in a shrinking from what appears to them an arbitrary assignment of men to diverse destinies without consideration of their desert. Certainly St. Paul as explicitly affirms the sovereignty of reprobation as election. If these twin ideas are indeed separable even in thought, if he represents God as sovereignly loving Jacob, he represents him equally as sovereignly hating Esau. If he declares that he will have mercy on whom he will, he equally declares that he will harden whom he will. Doubtless, the difficulty often felt here is, in part, an outgrow of an insufficient realization of St. Paul's basal conception of the state of man at large as condemned sinners before an angry God. It is with a world of lost sinners that he represents God as dealing and out of this world building up a kingdom of grace. Were not all men sinners, there might still be an election, as sovereign as now, and there being an election, there would still be a sovereign rejection, but the rejection would not be a rejection to punishment, to destruction, to eternal death, but to some other 
destiny consonant to the state in which those passed by should be left. It is not indeed, then, because men are sinners that men are left unelected. Election is free, and its obverse of rejection must equally be free. But it is solely because men are sinners that what they are left to is destruction. And it is in this universalism of ruin rather than in a universalism of salvation that St. Paul really roots his theodicy. When all deserve death, it is a marvel of pure grace that any receive life, and who shall gainsay the right of him who shows this miraculous mercy to have mercy on whom he will, and whom he will to harden. Proof from Scripture This is admittedly an unpleasant doctrine. It is not taught to gain favor with men, but only because it is the plain teaching of the Scriptures and the logical counterpart of the doctrine of election. We shall find that some scripture passages do teach the doctrine with unmistakable clearness. These should be sufficient for anyone who accepts the Bible as the word of God. Jehovah hath made everything for its own end, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Proverbs 16.4 Christ is said to be to the wicked a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. 1 Peter 2.8 For there are certain men crept in privily, even they who were of old, written of beforehand to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude 4 But these, as creatures without reason, born mere animals to be taken and destroyed, railing in matters whereof they are ignorant, shall in their destroying surely be destroyed. Second Peter 2.12 For God did put in their heart to do his mind, and to come to one mind, and to give their kingdom unto the beast, until the word of God should be accomplished. Revelation 17.17 17. Concerning the beast of St. John's vision, it is said, All that dwell on earth shall worship him, every one whose name hath not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that hath been slain. Revelation 13.8 And we may contrast these with the disciples whom Jesus told to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. Luke 10.20 And with Paul's fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Philippians 4.3 Paul declares that the vessels of wrath, which by the Lord were fitted unto destruction, were endured with much long-suffering, in order that he might show his wrath and make his power known. And with these are contrasted the vessels of mercy, which he afore prepared unto glory, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon them. Romans 9.22 and 23 Concerning the heathen, it is said that God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting, Romans 1.28. And the wicked, after his hardness and impenitent heart, treasures up for himself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, Romans 2.5. In regard to those who perish, Paul says, God sendeth them a working of error 
that they should believe a lie. Second Thessalonians 2.11 They are called upon to behold these things in an external way, to wonder at them, and to go on perishing in their sins. Hear the words of Paul in the synagogue at Antioch in Poseida. Behold ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe if one declare it unto you. Acts 13.41 The Apostle John, after narrating that the people still disbelieved, although Jesus had done so many signs before them, adds, For this cause they could not believe, for that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, and perceive with their hearts, and should turn, and I should heal them. John 12:39 and 40 Christ's command to the wicked in the final judgment, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25:41 is the strongest possible decree of reprobation, and it is the same in principle, whether issued in time or eternity. What is right for God to do in time is not wrong for him to include in his eternal plan. On one occasion, Jesus himself declared, For judgment came I into this world, that they that see not may see, and that they that see may become blind. John 9.39 On another occasion, he said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise in understanding, and didst reveal them unto babes. Matthew 11.25 It is hard for us to realize that the adorable Redeemer and only Savior of men is to some a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, yet that is what the scriptures declare him to be. Even before his birth it was said that he was sent, that is appointed, for the falling as well as for the rising of many in Israel. Luke 2.34 And when in his intercessory prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane he said, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me, the non-elect were repudiated in so many words. Jesus himself declared that one of the reasons why he spoke in parables was that the truth might be concealed from those for whom it was not intended. We shall let the sacred history speak for itself. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but unto them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall it be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Therefore I speak unto them in parables, because seeing they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And unto them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall in no wise understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall in no wise perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest happily they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should turn again, and I should heal them. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 15, Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. 
In these words we have an application of Jesus' words, Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast your pearls before swine. Matthew 7, 6 He who affirms that Christ designed to give his saving truth to everyone flatly contradicts Christ himself. To the non-elect the Bible is a sealed book, and only to the true Christian is it given to see and understand these things. So important is this truth that the Holy Spirit has been pleased to repeat six times over in the New Testament this passage from Isaiah, Matthew 13, verses 14 and 15, Mark 4, verse 12, Luke 8, verse 10, John 12, verse 40, and Acts 28, verse 27, and Romans 11, verses 9 and 10. Paul tells us that through grace the election received the salvation and that the rest were hardened. Then he adds, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. And further he quotes the words of David to the same effect, Let their table be made a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their backs always. Romans 11, verses 8-10 through 10. Hence, as regards some, the evangelical proclamations were designed to harden and not to heal. This same doctrine finds expression in numerous other parts of Scripture. Moses said to the children of Israel, But Sihon, king of Heshbon, would not let you pass by him, for Jehovah thy God hardeneth his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might deliver him into thy hand as at this day. Deuteronomy 2.30 in regard to the Canaanitish tribes who came against Joshua, it is written, For it was of Jehovah to harden their hearts to come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, as Jehovah commanded Moses. Joshua 11, verse 20. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were reproved for their wickedness, hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because Jehovah was minded to slay them. 1 Samuel 2:25. Though Pharaoh acted very arrogantly and wickedly toward the Israelites, Paul assigns no other reason than that he was one of the reprobate whose evil actions were to be overruled for good. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, For this very purpose did I raise thee up, that I might show in thee my power, and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. Romans 9.17 See also Exodus 9.16 in all the reprobate there is a blindness and an obstinate hardness of heart. And when any, like Pharaoh, are said to have been hardened of God, we may be sure that they were already in themselves worthy of being delivered over to Satan. The hearts of the wicked are, of course, never hardened by the direct influence of God. He simply permits some men to follow out the evil impulses which are already in their hearts, so that, as a result of their own choices, they become more and more calloused and obstinate. And while it is said, for instance, that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it is also said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 8.15, chapter 8, verse 32, chapter 9, verse 34. One description is given from the divine viewpoint, the other is given from the human viewpoint. God is ultimately responsible for the hardening of the heart in that he permits it to occur, and the inspired writer in graphic language simply says that God does it.
but never are we to understand that God is the immediate and efficient cause. Although this doctrine is harsh, it is nevertheless scriptural, and since it is so plainly taught in scripture, we can assign no reason for the opposition which it has met other than the pure ignorance and unreasoned prejudice with which men's minds have been filled with when they come to study it. How applicable here are the words of Rice. Happily would it be for the Church of Christ and for the world if Christian ministers and Christian people could be contented to be disciples, that is, learners. If conscious of their limited faculties, their ignorance of divine things, and their proneness to error through depravity and prejudice, they could be induced to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn of him. The church has been corrupted and cursed in almost every age by the undue confidence of men in their reasoning powers. They have undertaken to pronounce upon the reasonableness or unreasonableness of doctrines infinitely above their reason, which are necessarily matters of pure revelation. In their presumption, they have sought to comprehend the deep things of God and have interpreted the scriptures not according to their obvious meaning, but according to the decisions of the finite reason. And again, he says, no one ever studied the works of nature or the book of Revelation without finding himself encompassed on every side by difficulties he could not solve. The philosopher is obliged to be satisfied with facts, and the theologian must content himself with God's declarations. Strange to say, many of those who insist that when people come to study the doctrine of the Trinity, they should put aside all preconceived notions and should not rely simply upon the unaided human reason to decide what can or cannot be true of God, and who insist that the scriptures should be accepted here as the unquestioned and authoritative guide, are not willing to follow those rules in the study of the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of reprobation is based on the doctrine of original sin. No injustice is done to the non-elect. It is obvious that this part of the doctrine of predestination, which affirms that God has, by a sovereign and eternal decree, chosen one portion of mankind to salvation, while leaving the other portion to destruction, strikes us at first as being opposed to our common ideas of justice, and hence needs a defense. The defense of the doctrine of reprobation rests upon the preceding doctrine of original sin, or total inability. This doctrine finds the whole race fallen. None have any claim on God's grace, but instead of leaving all to their just punishment, God gratuitously confers undeserved happiness upon one portion of mankind, an act of pure mercy and grace to which no one can object, while the other portion is simply passed by. No undeserved misery is inflicted upon this latter group, hence no one has any right to object to this part of the decree. If the decree simply dealt with innocent men, it would be unjust to assign one portion to condemnation. But since it deals with men in a particular state, which is a state of guilt and sin, it is not unjust. The corruption of the world as lying in the evil one, and therefore judged already, John 3.18, so that upon those who are not removed from 
the evil of the world, the wrath of God is not so much to be poured out, but simply abides. John 3.36, compare 1 John 3.14, is fundamental to this whole presentation. It is therefore on the one hand that Jesus represents himself as having come not to condemn the world, but to save the world, John 3.17, chapter 8, verse 12, John 9.5, and chapter 12, verse 47, compare chapter 4, verse 42, and all that he does as having for its end the introduction of life into the world, John 6.33 in chapter 6, verse 51, the already condemned world needs no further condemnation. It needs saving. Guilty man has lost his rights and falls under the will of God. God's absolute sovereignty now comes in, and when he shows mercy in some cases, we cannot object to his justice in others unless we would call and question his government of the universe. Viewed in this light, the doctrine of predestination finds mankind one mass of perdition and allows only a portion of it to remain such. When all antecedently deserved punishment, it was not unjust for some to be antecedently consigned to it. Otherwise, the execution of a just sentence would be unjust. When the Armenian says that faith and works constitute the ground of election, we dissent, says Clark, but if he says that foreseen unbelief and disobedience constitute the ground of reprobation, we assent readily enough. A man is not saved on the ground of his virtues, but he is condemned on the ground of his sin. As strict Calvinists, we insist that while some men are saved from their unbelief and disobedience, in which all men are involved, and others are not, it is still the sinner's sinfulness that constitutes the ground of his reprobation. Election and reprobation proceed on different grounds, one the grace of God, the other the sin of man. It is a diversity on Calvinism to say that because God elects to save a man irrespective of his character or deserts, that therefore he elects to damn a man irrespective of his character or deserts. This reprobation or passing by of the non-elect is not founded merely upon a foresight of their continuance in sin, for if that had been a proper cause, reprobation would have been the fate of all men, and for all were foreseen as sinners. Nor can it be said that those who were passed by were in all cases worse sinners than those who were brought to eternal life. The scripture always ascribed faith and repentance to the good pleasure of God and to the special gracious operation of His Spirit. Those who conceive of mankind as innocent and deserving of salvation are naturally scandalized when any portion of the race is antecedently consigned to punishment. But when the doctrine of original sin, which is taught so clearly and repeatedly in the scriptures, is seen in its proper setting, the objections to predestination disappear and the condemnation of the wicked seems only just and natural. Thus salvation is of the Lord alone and damnation wholly from ourselves. Men perish because they will not come to Christ yet if they have a will to come, it is of God who works the will in them. Grace, electing grace, both draws the will and keeps it steady, 
and to grace be all the praise. Furthermore, out of a world of sinful and rebellious subjects, none of whom were in themselves worthy of saving, God has graciously chosen some when he might have passed by all as he did the fallen angels, 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6. He has taken it altogether upon himself to provide the redemption through which his people are saved. The atonement, therefore, is his own property, and he certainly may, as he most assuredly will, do what he pleases with his own. Grace is given to one and withheld from another, as he sees best. It is to be noticed also that the withholding of his grace from the non-elect is but the negative cause of their perishing, just as the absence of a physician from the sick man is the occasion, not the efficient cause, of his death. In the sight of an infinitely good and merciful God, says Dr. Charles Hodge, it was necessary that some of the rebellious race of man should suffer the penalty of the law, which all have broken. It is God's prerogative to determine who shall be vessels of mercy and who shall be left to the just recompense of their sins. Since man has brought himself into this state of sin, his condemnation is just, and every demand of justice would be met in his punishment. Conscience tells us that man perishes justly, since he chooses to follow Satan rather than God. Ye will not come to me that ye may have life, said Jesus, John 5.40. And in this connection, the words of Professor F. E. Hamilton are very appropriate. All God does is to let him, the unregenerate, alone and allow him to go his own way without interference. It is his nature to be evil, and God simply has foreordained to leave that nature unchanged. The picture often painted by opponents of Calvinism of a cruel God refusing to save those who long to be saved is a gross caricature. God saves all who want to be saved, but no one whose nature is unchanged wants to be saved. Those who are lost are lost because they deliberately choose to walk in the ways of sin, and this will be the very hell of hells that men have been self-destroyers. Many people talk as if salvation were a matter of human birthright, and forgetful of the fact that man had and lost his supremely favorable chance in Adam. They inform us that God would be unjust if he did not give all guilty creatures an opportunity to be saved. In regard to this idea that salvation is given in return for something done by the person, Luther says, But let us, I pray you, suppose that God ought to be such a one who should have respect unto merit in those who are damned. Must we not in like manner also require and grant that he ought to have respect unto merit in those who are to be saved? For if we are to follow reason, it is equally unjust that the undeserving should be crowned as that the deserving should be damned. No one with proper ideas of God supposes that he suddenly does something which he had not thought of before. Since his is an eternal purpose, what he does in time is what he proposed from eternity to do. 
Those whom he saved are those whom he purposed from eternity to save, and those whom he leaves to perish are those whom he proposed from eternity to leave. If it is just for God to do a certain thing in time, it is, by parity of argument, just for him to resolve upon and decree it from eternity, for the principle of the action is the same in either case. And if we are justified in saying that from all eternity God has intended to display his mercy in pardoning a vast multitude of sinners, why do some people object so strenuously when we say that from all eternity God has intended to display his justice in punishing other sinners? Hence, if it is just for God to forbear saving some people after they are born, it is just for him to form that purpose before they were born or in eternity. And since the determining will of God is omnipotent, it cannot be obstructed or made void. This being true, it follows that he never did, nor does, he now will that every individual of mankind should be saved. If he willed this, not one single soul could ever be lost, for who hath resisted his will? If he willed that none should be lost, he would surely give to all men those effectual means of salvation, without which it cannot be had. Now, God could give those means as easily to all mankind as to some only, but experience proves that he does not. Hence it logically follows that it is not his secret purpose or decretive will that all should be saved. In fact, the two truths that what God does, he does from eternity, and that only a portion of the human race is saved, is enough to complete the doctrines of election and reprobation. State of the Heathens The fact that, in the providential working of God, some men are left without the gospel, and the other means of grace virtually involves the principle set forth in the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. We see that in all ages the greater portion of mankind has been left destitute even of the external means of grace. For centuries the Jews, who were very few in number, were the only people to whom God was pleased to make any special revelation of himself. Jesus confined his public ministry almost exclusively to them and forbade his disciples to go among others until after the day of Pentecost. Matthew 10 verses 5 and 6 chapter 28, verse 19, Mark 16:15, and Acts 1:4. Multitudes were left with no chance to hear the gospel and consequently died in their sins. If God had intended to save them, undoubtedly he would have sent them the means of salvation. If he had chosen to Christianize India and China a thousand years ago, he most certainly could have accomplished his purpose. Instead, they were left in gross darkness and unbelief. The past and present state of the world, with all its sin, misery, and death, can have no other explanation than that given in Scripture. Namely, that the race fell in Adam, and that in mercy God has sovereignly chosen to bring an innumerable multitude to salvation through a redemption which he has himself provided. It is a perverted and dishonoring view of God to imagine him struggling along with disobedient men, 
doing the best he can to convert them, but not able to accomplish his purpose. If the Arminian theory were true, namely, that Christ died for all men, and that the benefits of his death are actually applied to all men, we would expect to find that God had made some provision for the gospel to be communicated to all men. The problem of the heathens who live and die without the gospel has always been a thorny one for the Armenians, who insist that all men have sufficient grace if they will but make use of it. Few will deny that salvation is conditioned on the person hearing and accepting the gospel. The Christian church has been practically of one mind in declaring that the heathens as a class are lost, that such is the clear teaching of the Bible we can easily show, and in none other is there salvation, for neither is there any other name under heaven that is given among men wherein we must be saved. Acts 4.12 As many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law, and as many as have sinned under the law shall be judged by the law. Romans 2.12 Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 I am the vine, ye are the branches. Apart from me ye can do nothing. John 15.5 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14.6 He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life. But he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.36 He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. 1 John 5.12 And this is eternal life, that they should know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. John 17.3 Without faith it is impossible to be well-pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6 Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10.13 and 14 Or, in other words, how can the heathen possibly be saved when they have never even heard of Christ, who is the only means of salvation? Jesus therefore said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have not life in yourselves. John 6.53 When the watchman sees danger coming, but does not give the people warning, they perish in their iniquity. Ezekiel 33.8 True, the watchman will be held responsible, yet that does not change the fate of the people. Jesus declared that even the Samaritans, who had far higher privileges than the nation outside of Palestine, worshipped they knew not what, and that salvation was of the Jews. See also the first and second chapters of Romans. The scriptures then are plain in declaring that under ordinary conditions, those who have not Christ and the gospel are lost. And in accordance with this, the Westminster Confession, after stating that those who reject Christ cannot be saved adds much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion 
they do profess. Chapter 10, verse 4. In fact, the belief that the heathens without the gospel are lost has been one of the strongest arguments in favor of foreign missions. If we believe that their own religions contain enough light and truth to save them, the importance of preaching the gospel to them is greatly lessened. Our attitude toward foreign missions is determined pretty largely by the answer which we give to this question. We do not deny that God can save some even of the adult heathen people if he chooses to do so, for his spirit works when and where and how he pleases, with means or without means. If any such are saved, however, it is by a miracle of pure grace. Certainly God's ordinary method is to gather his elect from the evangelized portion of mankind, although we must admit the possibility that by an extraordinary method some few of his elect may be gathered from the unevangelized portion. The fate of those who die in infancy in heathen lands will be discussed under the subject infant salvation. It is unreasonable to suppose that people can appropriate to themselves something concerning which they know nothing. We readily see that so far as the pleasures and joys and opportunities in this world are concerned, the heathens are largely passed by, and on the same principle we would expect them to be passed by in the next world also. Those who are providentially placed in the pagan darkness of western China can no more accept Christ as Savior than they can accept the radio, the airplane, or the Copernican system of astronomy, things concerning which they are totally ignorant. When God places people in such conditions, we may be sure that he has no more intention that they shall be saved than he has that the soil of northern Siberia, which is frozen all the year round, shall produce crops of wheat. Had he intended otherwise, he would have supplied the means leading to the designed end. There are also multitudes in the nominally Christian lands to whom the gospel has never been presented in any adequate way, who have not even the outward means of salvation, to say nothing of the helpless state of their heart. This, of course, does not mean that all of the lost shall suffer the same degree of punishment. We believe that from a common zero point there will be all degrees of reward and all degrees of punishment, and that a person's reward or punishment will, to a certain extent, be based on the opportunity that he has had in this world. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue 
Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.